I am a teacher at Chisholm Trail Academy. I know that may come as a shock to some of you, none of you, you all know this, but what you may not realize is that in addition to teaching uh, classes, I am also in charge of uh, recruiting for CTA, which means if you send an email to the school and you're asking for information or you're just trying to, you know, you have questions or you want to understand something, usually you're, you're getting in touch with me. As a result of this, I have lots of conversations with parents and with students, prospective students. And one of the questions that comes up quite often is this question about uh, our trips at CTA. So why, why do you have so many trips? And uh, it didn't seem like that many for me because I went to CTA and so it was like, this is the normal regular amount. What are you talking about? Uh, and then, you know, we, we take a look at the schedule and you count them all up and we'll, it's close to 20 trips a year between all the different things we do with Southwestern and all the different things we do uh, ourselves and all the other things with the union and leadership camp, count them all up. It's quite a number of different trips. And so, you know, I get this question kind of uh, on the regular, why do we have so many trips? What are we really, what's the point of it? I know there's a lot of uh, explanation that I could give, uh, a lot of answers that are uh, correct. Uh, we, we, do, we do trips because there are some things that you learn better when you're there in the place that the lesson is about. So if you're trying to learn about Gettysburg, it's a little helpful to be in Gettysburg when you're learning about Gettysburg, right? Does this make sense? Seeing a head nod, thank you. Um, it's also helpful when you're learning about the Holocaust to maybe walk through the Holocaust Museum. It's helpful to be in these spaces. It's, there's, a, there's an academic plus that comes with being on some of these trips. Um, but that's maybe not all the reasons that we have for going on these trips. Uh, one trip in particular, our Big Bend biology trip, is especially designed and planned, well, okay, to teach biology. That's important, that, that, that does happen. But it's also planned to do something else. It's the trip that is meant to bring the class together. Because at CTA, we have students that come from all sorts of different schools, right? We have Fwaja, we have BAS and KAES, we have homeschool students, we have Cleburne Avenue, all sorts of six, seven different places, and they all come together and they form a class. And what happens is, at the beginning of the school year, the freshmen stay in their little pods, their little sections, right? The KAES crowd always sits with the KAES students, and the BAS crowd always sits with the, you follow the logic, right? And so, this, this class trip, the one that the sophomores are actually about to go on this Saturday night, they're loading up, is designed to make the class whole. Because something happens when you're going down the Rio Grande and you're rafting and you're, you're having to work together. We, we intentionally try to split them up and put them with people that they're not used to being with. And it, what happens is by the end of the trip, they all, they all tend to come back a little different than they were before they left. This trip acts as a great equalizer. It makes the students interact with each other, form new relationships, they form new bonds. And when they get back to school, the class is different. No longer is it five, six, seven different groups, it's one group. And you'll notice after this trip that the students' habits change. The people they spend time with changes, and, the mo and this is most noticeable at the lunch table. They sit 
and different combinations than they did before. The welcome table does that. Breaking bread together will do that. It is a great equalizer. We're continuing on with our series at the, with, the welcome, welcome, with the welcome table today. We've covered a lot of ground over the past few weeks, but here today, we are going to be dealing with the upside-down theology that Jesus is presenting square on. Jesus has been preaching this over and over again throughout the entire book of Luke, this upside-down way of approaching life. So our passage this morning comes from Luke 14, and we're going to kind of walk through it together and grab the context. You guys with me? You can uh, open up your Bibles or uh, click on your Bibles. We're in Luke chapter 14. We're going to start with chapter, I mean, with chapter 14. We're going to start with verse 1 for a little bit of context. It starts off like this. It says, One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. Sorry, I tried to say it with a straight face. I couldn't do it. He was, he was being carefully watched. He yeah, he was being carefully watched. This is Jesus. He's going around preaching all these sort of radical things. He's bothering people. Every time he opens his mouth, people are made uncomfortable, especially those that are religious leaders. So he's being carefully watched. This was, uh, this was to be expected as Jesus' message was countercultural. The Pharisees were threatened by his message, and it bothered them and made them feel so uncomfortable that he was being watched. Constantly. Have you ever felt like this? You walk into a room and you're like immediately like, you know, you're being observed extra closely. Verse 2 continues on. There in front of him was a man suffering from abdominal swelling of his body. So this person is likely an outcast in society. People that were sick couldn't participate in normal life events and that made them othered. It pushed them to the fringes. Jesus asked the Pharisees, continuing, continuing on in verse 3, Jesus asked the Pharisees and the experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Uh, the, uh, the cultural moment's kind of a little lost on us. That is a tense question. The, the, the anxiety in the room went up tenfold when he asked that question. And it's a masterful question that Jesus asks. It proves his point without having to say it. The Pharisees were comfortable with staying in their spots in society. They didn't want to change anything. The status quo was working for them. Continuing on with verse 4. But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he, Jesus, healed him and sent him on his way. He's doing the very thing that's making them all feel uncomfortable. Then Jesus asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. <laughs> Don't you just love that? <laughs> Jesus can be a little extra sometimes. He's great. He's just, he's, he's, he's all about calling people out. I mean, we love it when he's calling other people out, but it doesn't feel as good when we realize that he's actually talking to us. When he noticed how the guest 
pick the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. So let's stop for a second. The cultural context of this seating arrangement that's been established. The seating arrangement from, uh, from, went from most important to the least important at all tables in, this, in, 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 society, in the society at the time. The head, at the head of the table would always have the most prominent members of society. It was a physical expression of the importance placed upon each person. You can literally see how important you are by the seat you are given at the table. So there's this other trip that CTA likes to take. It's one of my favorites. It's the senior class retreat. We do it at the very beginning of the year. We take all the seniors and we, we take them out on, on, a, on a spiritual retreat. We're, well, we're, the, the, the impetus behind this particular retreat is that they would uh, have a moment where they realize it's their responsibility to take the reins of leading spiritually the entire school. Now, we do all sorts of different things, and some of them are supposed to be secret and supposed to be you know, not told so that the next class coming through will be able to experience it just like all the other classes. But I'm going to tell you guys one of the things that we do. There's this activity that, that, that we play. We, br we bring all the students together. And we, it starts off simple. What we do is we tell them to get into these lines, to get into these uh, 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 groupings. And we'll tell the entire senior class, okay, put yourselves in order from tallest to shortest. They got this. Easy, easy, right? Takes not but just a second. Done. Then we're like, okay, now put yourselves in order from oldest to youngest. And that takes a little more discussion, there's a little more debate, and they have to figure out months and days, and a little math is done, and they figure it out, put themselves in a line. We do this over and over again, asking them to put themselves in different lines. And then until finally we come to the last thing that we ask them to do, put yourselves in order from most important to least important. Wouldn't you know it? Some classes figure this out fast, and some do not. I have been on this trip before where some classes actually start putting themselves in order from least important to most important. We like to tell ourselves we don't do this anymore. Nah, Jonathan, at my house, people can sit at whatever spot they want to at my table. Yeah, you might be right but we still keep track of the importance of each member of our community, don't we? Mm. Everybody a little uncomfortable? Good. That's what's supposed to happen when you read the Bible. Let's continue on with the story, shall we? Verse 8. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, this is Jesus telling this parable, when someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both you, both, sorry, both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that your host so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to the better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of the other guests. This is more that upside-down theology that Luke has been recording over and over again. Jesus has been preaching this 
the first will be last and the last will be first. Verse 11. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and for those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. Now, there is no problem. There is no problem with us inviting friends and family over to break bread with us. Let's understand the cultural context of this. Oh, I cut off the verse. So uh, let me finish the verse. So he says, if you do, they may invite you back. And, you, uh, uh, and so you will be repaid. There's a cultural context to this. In, the, in, 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 in this particular time in society, when you invited someone over to your house, there was a culture of reciprocity. This still happens in some cultures in different parts of the world to this day. Uh, not so, kind of, maybe in ours. I don't know. Uh, depends. Uh, but at the time, it was very much expected that if you invited a rich person over to your house and they came, they would invite you back over to your house. You understanding? You see what it is that Jesus is saying? He's saying, don't go out of your way to invite just the most prominent members of, the, of your community to your house because what you're really doing is just trying to get an invitation over to their house. You're just trying to move your own seat further up the welcome table. If you invite only fancy people over to your house, then... All of your invitations will be to fancy people's houses. Jesus has a different plan. So it's not at all a problem for you to be inviting friends and loved ones over to your house. The problem is when you are only inviting your close friends and relatives. I'm uncomfortable. Somebody else want to preach the rest of the sermon? Verse 13 But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and then you will be blessed. Although you cannot, although although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of righteousness. And who is this? Who? uh, I'm sorry. And who is uh, the? Who are these people that Jesus is spending all of his time with? The poor, the outcasts, the sex workers, all these people on the fringes of the community. Jesus is always with the outcasts. If you find that you aren't around any outcasts, you may need to wonder if you are where Jesus is. The whole gospel message. Guys, it's just hard. It just seems to not make sense to me. Everything's upside down. You know, you got... You got the poor receiving the kingdom of heaven. You got the mourning being comforted. You got the meek inheriting the earth. The hungry and the thirsty are being filled. Mercy for merciful, pure in heart are getting to see God. Peacemakers are being called children of God. And the persecuted, well, they're getting the kingdom of heaven. What's going on here? I don't understand. These outcasts seem to be the ones that Jesus is spending all of his time with. None of it is making any sense, partly because it's easy to read over these things and think, man, that stinks for the Pharisees, but this is us. The welcome table tears down the inequalities of the community and puts people on a level playing field. There's something sanitized about giving someone food instead of inviting them over to your house for a meal. Now, 
I didn't say that it was wrong for us to meet the needs of our community. Jesus does this, but he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop at just giving someone a meal because when you give someone a meal, you're the person in power. You're the person with the thing that the other person needs. And so you are acting in a position of superiority. Oh, I'm better than you. I have the thing that you need, and so I'll give it to you, and then I can go back to my place of comfort. That's not the thing that we were called to do. Well, that's not the only thing that we were called to do. We were called to be uncomfortable, to invite the outcasts into our homes and to eat with them and to respond to their invitation and to go into their homes and eat with them. Mm, this is different. Jesus accepts the hospitality of the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. He goes over to Zacchaeus' house. Do you remember the story of Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was a wheelman and he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree. What's the rest? And he said, Zacchaeus, you come down for he's doing what? Going to your house. I'm going to your house, Zacchaeus. Do you understand how radical that is? Zacchaeus was an outcast. Zacchaeus wasn't liked. No, no, nobody was inviting Zacchaeus over to their house. No one was definitely going over to Zacchaeus' house. Where's Jesus? Where's he at? Mm. Jesus even spent time with sex workers and prostitutes. This one's still taboo for us today. In Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace, he talks with a prostitute who lived in Chicago, and he asked her why she never thought of reaching out to the church for help. Her reply is chilling, and it has set in the back of my mind and troubled me. Church, she cries, why would I ever go there? I was already feeling terrible about myself. They'd just make me feel worse. What are we doing? Like, what are we doing? Do we need to take a pause? Do we need to take a pulse? What's the point of this pretty carpet and the wonderful air conditioning and these beautiful lights? What's the point of it all if this can't be a place where people can come and meet Jesus? What's the point of calling ourselves a community if we aren't going to be inviting the outcasts over to our homes and responding to their invitation in kind? I think Jesus would have helped her. In fact, he did. He often helped prostitutes. I believe that the Jesus I know would have done more than just meet her needs. He would have welcomed her at his table. Would he do it today? Would Jesus still break bread with the outsiders? You think he still would eat with, with the outsiders, with, with the prostitutes, with, with the immigrants? What about the people that eat differently than we do? What about the people that sound differently than we do? What about queer people? Oh, but wait. What if we disagree with some of these people? Okay, cool. Do that. Disagree with them. But let's not act like it's a new thing for us. We do not have full consensus on any particular issue in this space. Should we take a vote on women's ordination right now? What about how to keep the Sabbath? Is the water supposed to come up to here or to here when I go swimming on the Sabbath? 
We're acting like we have consensus on things. Hmm. We can have a difference of opinion and still be in community because unity, community and unity do not come from uniformity. Never have and they never will and it's a lie that we've been telling ourselves over and over again, and it is so frustrating, and we keep bumping our heads up against this wall. Unity comes from a shared goal. I want to share with you a story that has sat in the back of my head for years. I heard another speaker talk on this topic of unity in the church. She, told, she tells this story of when she was a nurse. And I wish that I could give her credit. I, can't, I cannot remember her name. It, it, it has been fundamental to the way that I think about community. I, I'm, I'm going to share it with you. I can't say it as well as she can. I don't know her name. If I ever figure it out, I'll come back and I'll tell you and share total credit with, of her story with you. But she tells the story of how once she was a nurse. She worked as a nurse in a neonatal intensive care unit. And as she was working, she came in and she, it, was, it, was a, it was a rough day. This particular um, shift was a rough day. And she was, she, was getting, uh, she was not getting along with the other nurses that were working on the floor that day. There was disagreement in the room about how to best treat uh, one of their particular patients. And then there was disagreement between the nurses and the charge nurse. And there was a lot of discussion going around about what was the best practice, about what was the best course of treatment for this little baby. And then the doctors came in the room, and there was even more discussion. There was even more debate. There was even more frustrating uh, uh, discourse back and forth. It was an important conversation. No one's saying that it wasn't an important conversation. And no one's saying that we shouldn't disagree with each other or that there isn't a, a right course and a wrong course. Here's what happens in the middle of all of this, in the middle of all this discourse, in the middle of all this disagreement, of this important discourse and disagreement. One of the babies starts to crash. And in that moment, none of the disagreements mattered. Why? Because they had a shared goal to save the baby. Unity has never come from uniformity. It never has. It never has. It never will. Unity comes from a shared goal. We all have a metaphorical baby to save. It is this community. Better see some heads nodding. We can hold space with people that are different, with people with whom we disagree. We have to in order to have community. We have to in order to be able to read and wrestle with the word of God together. What happens when we start cutting out groups from our community? Well, it hurts us. And we end up misunderstanding and othering people. We start writing theology about people we don't know. We write theology about people we don't know, and it doesn't work. We can't write a theology about women's ordination if we do not love and respect women. We cannot write a theology about slavery if we do not love and respect black people. We cannot write any theology about any outcasts if we do not know, love, and respect them. No longer 
Can we be different groups like my sophomore class is right now? All meeting together. If I could, I would send us all down the Rio Grande River. A bunch of rafts. I would. But Jesus has already come up with a solution. I'm going to encourage you to do a radical thing this morning. I'm going to encourage you to follow the advice of Jesus and to seek out outcasts, to invite them into your homes for a meal, to break bread with them, to accept then an invitation from them into their homes. Make sure you're, make sure you're lowly because one day the lowly will be exalted. Make sure you are with the outsiders because one day the outsiders will be the insiders. Be where Jesus is. And where is Jesus? He's always with the outcasts. The hard work of living in a community looks like this. Even though we may disagree on very important issues, we have a shared goal. And it is higher and more uniting than anything. And his name is Jesus. Grace and peace to us elevate as we engage in the hard work of welcoming the unwelcome to our dinner tables. Grace and peace.